Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, it's Chicky Fitzgerald with the Game Changer Network, and we are going to be going a little bit off topic today, but one of the things that we care a lot about here at the Game Changer Network is making sure that you're always at the top of your game. And one of the things that can draw you away from that is the topic of today's call. And the book we're going to be talking about is Caring for Aging Parents, Lessons in Love, Loss, and Letting Go. And uh, back by popular demand is the author, Michelle Howe. Michelle, welcome. It's so great to have you back. Hi, Chicky. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And you're just so great at making an author feel wanted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that is what we're here for is, is really to help authors uh, get their message out. And uh, you are a very, very prolific author. You have so many books that you have written. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly they can go on to Amazon and just click on your name and that will take them to your author page and, and show you. But, you know, you have kind of a, a, a thread through all of them. I think the last time we talked was Faith, Friends, and Flotation Devices. Mm-hmm. Um, but this time we're going to be talking about this book about aging parents. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I had uh, shared before we started that, you know, I have a lot of experience and I'm, I'm actually on the other side of this, having had to let go uh, of both of my parents actually uh, quite a long time ago. Now they both passed away in, in 2001 and my husband's uh, father had a stroke the same year. My mother had a stroke in 1995 and and so we uh you know had to deal with with him and being in a nursing home and and having his uh, my husband's mother and you know and she just passed away uh actually it's been 3 years already and and actually my producer Patty lived with my mother-in-law and helped us uh care for uh for her so uh tons of of personal experience here that you know I would love to interject as we're talking but before we do that why don't you uh tell our folks uh a little bit about you before you started uh publishing books well i've been uh writing for almost 30 years now and i started out just reviewing books i've been an avid reader my entire life so books are like the, my great, the great love of my life are books. So I read them, I review them, and then I start writing them in 1999. And and as you said earlier, my books have kind of followed the thread of my life. I mean, I was first writing about single parenting, not because I'm a single parent, but my two closest friends went through unwanted divorces. So I was started. I started telling their story, and then I started interviewing women all over the country, and ended up writing five books for single parenting. And it, uh, again, it's not my story, but I think these women are so right. courageous, and it's just been uh, remarkable to me what you can do, whatever you need to do when you are, you know, put into a situation. I mean, life throws us a lot of curveballs. And then I kind of started writing about parenting, and then it went into health issues for a while, and then it was emptiness. And 
And so this caring for our aging parents is the natural progression because my husband and I have had two experiences already, caring for an elderly relative who was also our neighbor, and then we cared for his father before he passed away. So it became like the natural next step for me to start talking to people who are in it. And at my age, which is 56, Almost every man or woman I know is right sandwiched between their adult kids and caring for their aging parents. So we're all in this together, and it's interesting the lessons that I've learned from others as well as what I've gleaned from our own experience. And uh, they haven't always been easy lessons to learn. Right, right. Well, and and again, because we we don't, tend to prepare for it. And, you know, I, I, I think we have this feeling that they'll always be around, right? And, you know, this was the case with my mother-in-law, and, and we had bought her a home across the street from us uh, a good decade before uh, she passed away. So she was able to be involved every day in my kids' lives. And she was 92 uh, when she passed away, but her mother had lived to 98 and her aunt mm. had lived to 105. So we wow. never in a million years thought that she would die at 92. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the book talks a lot about roles and, and change and, and, you know, just so many dimensions of, of this journey. You begin the book by talking about how this, the change is inevitable. So mm -hmm. are, are you uh, talking about the change in the relationship? Are you talking about the change in roles? Um, you know, wh what, what is it that we have to deal with and change? Well, this first chapter, Change is Inevitable, is pretty much, it covers the gamut. I mean, because every person's experience is going to be different. Like you, you were, you had your mother-in-law across the street, and a lot of people, their parents are across the country. So right. the change, the challenge is not only distance and time, it's financial. And I talk about finances later on. It's just every every area of life is challenged when you're put into a position where you are taking responsibility for another person. And when it's your parent, it seems to be doubly tricky because either right. you've had a good, a good relationship with your parents or even if you've had a <laughs> poor relationship, you know, when when right. the roles start reversing and you start parenting your parents, it is really unnatural. I mean, I don't like and have did not like having to do things for our elderly um, cousin. He he was in his seventies because he was this fiercely independent man. And he didn't want any help from anybody. So it right. was me learning how to kind of gently, subtly get in there and do what needs to be done without offending him. And there were times where he was angry and rude and threatening to us, but we were just trying to help him over a, a long five-year period. So we had a lot of challenges uh, in our marriage because my husband and I looked at that situation and wanted the best for this gentleman, but came at it from two you know, different vantage points. I still had four teens at home, and I knew what I could and couldn't do. My husband right. was like, we need to step in and do everything for him. And it caused a lot of stress between us and for our kids. And then you, you, you know, you get through that season, and then you're faced with another challenging um, caregiving season with another person. And hopefully we did learn our lesson and, and learn to put boundaries up and enlist a lot of people to help us. So it right. really was, it was hard, but we, I will tell you, we learned so much, but life is always changing from one day to the next. And I think if you're flexible, you're way more 
prepared to handle what's coming than if you're a rigid type person. Right, right. Well, you know, it was interesting because my my first, um, you know, kind of touch of this was my own parents who were in, they lived in Wisconsin at the time. And Wisconsin happens to be one of those states that has just absolutely amazing senior care. And uh, my dad had kind of a bad heart, but he, you know, he was ambulatory. He was, he got around okay. But then my mother had a stroke and was wheelchair bound essentially for the rest of the seven years that she survived. And, and, uh, you know, so they had elder care that actually came into the home and it was, you know, it was a government program. So uh, they really had very little out of pocket. And then they would take her to a an adult daycare facility, you know, which was run by elder mm-hmm. care. And, you know, they paid for diapers and, you know, just a lot of things that come up. So things were actually quite good. And I had a sister who lived there. And so she was really the one who touched base with them. But, but they were able to stay in their apartment. Well, then my sister up and decided to move to Washington State. Oh. And her husband... Her husband absolutely would not even let her consider moving them to Washington. Uh, And he was adamant about that because he felt they had done their duty and it was someone else's turn, right? And by Mm -hmm. that time, my father-in-law had had a stroke. And so we had moved him to Georgia. uh, And, you know, there was no way I could deal with two sets of parents. So my Mm -hmm. my oldest sister took them. and, And then they were even further away in Idaho and, you know, moved into a nursing home. But, but yeah, that, that whole dynamic with siblings and, and, uh, you know, and, and you go into talking about uh, also tough love, right? That there are times mm-hmm. when, when you do have to be uh, tough about things that you wish you didn't. So, right. uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about tough love. Well, one of the most uh, memorable situations in all the years that we spent doing our caregiving service to our, our relatives was when our neighbor had had um, open heart surgery. He was in a rehab for a few weeks, and he really believed he was going to get to come home. And I went into one of those meetings, and if you've ever been in one, you know, the doctors are there, the social worker's there. I mean, everybody, the nutritionist is there. And, you know, there's this round table of people, and they were all so gracious and wonderful people. But he came in, and he had neglected to tell them that we were neighbors and he wasn't living in our home. So they thought that we I was bringing him home to live with us. Uh-huh. And I had to say, oh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but he's our neighbor. And, yes, we will check on him every day, but he's not in our home. Well, they all of a sudden, all their heads went down. They're looking at their papers. They're mumbling to themselves. And they're saying he cannot leave yet. He's not strong enough. It's not safe. Well, then he starts crying. And boy, did I feel like the worst person in the world. Oh. But but my, all our rooms were filled with our kids. We didn't have any extra bedrooms. And, and I wasn't equipped to help him anyway. He was a big guy. And he is somebody who could really help move him and maneuver him. So, yes. you know, you get into that. And that was a tough love situation. And I remember sitting in there and almost feeling like I wanted to cry myself because I thought this isn't safe for him to come home. But yet I felt like a, a horrid person and uh you know we talked about it later and he was okay with it but it was really difficult and I thought I feel like I'm like disciplining one of my kids here it was right. not a natural situation and I had wished that I'd never been pl- 
placed in that situation. But then the more we dealt with him, the more we became savvy, was really communicating directly to the doctors and the nurses and, you know, the PTs so that they knew what was really going on because he just wanted to come home. He didn't care if it was safe or not. He wanted to come home, but he wasn't thinking clearly either. So that was that was a tough one. But, you know, when I've interviewed so many people, they've all been in similar situations. Right. And, again, they've told just like I did, you feel like a heel. And yet right. you have to do, you have to look at the long term, not like, yeah, let's get them home and they'll be okay. No, they won't be okay because they could fall right. and break a hip and then they'll never come home. So yeah. there's some real difficult, you know, decisions that always have to be made. Well, and again, you you talked about, you know, the financial implications and all of these things that are are kind of swirling around that, again, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about it ahead of time. And and that circle of going from home to the hospital to rehab, sometimes back to the hospital, you know, uh, that really takes a toll. And and for us, my mother-in-law, you know, went through that several times and, um, you know, she she had such quick deterioration. She was in the, the rehab after she had been released from the hospital. And, you know, I'd come in and she'd be like all rolled up in a ball. And, you know, they would take her out and do physical therapy and all of this. Well, the next time she was in the hospital, we found out she had pancreatic cancer. And she was like dead six weeks later. Oh. And they never, ever discovered it, like in, in, in the, the rehab hospital. And, you know, here I was you know, saying to them, something's wrong. You know, we just celebrated her 92nd birthday. We were out for a steak dinner three weeks ago and look at her, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, so that, that, that role that you have to play, uh, I would say even using tough love with the people in the facility, you know, because they're yes. just used to like a, a level of maintenance. You know, they're not, they're not there to troubleshoot, especially in rehab. So, um you know, it's it's very, very interesting, that process. But I want to come back to something that, that you uh, alluded to a few minutes ago about uh, that all of a sudden there is a need to care for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you've got siblings, maybe you don't. But uh, not everybody has the same relationship with their parents. And mm-hmm. and there are broken relationships. And, and you devote some significant time to talking about how do you rebuild those broken relationships, especially when quite often you're called in to do something where it's really hard for them to, you know, keep their dignity when somebody has to change their diapers, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, and you know, when as I was writing this book, I will tell you, by the time I got to the end, I was getting a little depressed because this is not a happy-go-lucky subject. You know, no. I mean, you're, you're talking about end of life where there are lessons in love, sure, because you love the people you want to do the best you can for them. But there's so much loss, and then eventually you got to let it go because you know you're not in control. You can do what you can right. do, but that then it ends. But so many people had poor relationships with their parents, and yet the bright, shining you know, end story for most people were, were that middle-aged people in our age group were stepping up and doing the right thing even if their parents hadn't. I was just marveling at how many men and women would tell me, well, you know, my dad never treated me right or my dad was borderline abusive. You know, I set boundaries now, but I'm still taking care of them. Or the same with the mother. And I thought, wow, it says so much for the character of the middle-aged folks that are in our country who are stepping up even though it's not easy and it's a sacrifice on every level and often so uncomfortable. And uh, But then there's those stories where 
you know, you start serving somebody and maybe you've never been real close and people many times want to make peace before they die. And they, they you know, that and they, you have conversations right. you maybe could never have unless someone was dying of pancreatic cancer because they know that it's coming soon. Now, not everybody, but I heard so many heartwarming stories where, you know, parents, older parents were apologizing to their adult children and saying, please forgive me. I wasn't there for you or I treated you poorly or I, I never had a good word for you when you were growing up, but I'm so proud of you now. And there was a lot of healing stories that I heard, and I just thought, wow, you know, we just we hang in there with people, at least give them the chance. You know, sometimes it really works to the benefit of both of us. But, you know, there's other times where people, you know, I've had stories in the book that are just kind of even hard to read because the parents right. are mean, mean. I mean, it isn't because right. they have dementia. They're just mean people. And I right. end the, the whole book by saying, you know, I've looked at these elderly people and the middle-aged people, and I'm determined as a middle-aged woman to grow old gracefully, and I better be kind today if I expect to be kind when I'm 85. You know, you are right. what you are today. It's gonna, you're going to probably be that same person 20 years from now, so start being well, the person uh, now. Yeah, but let me interject. Um, my mother um, actually became opposite of, of what she was prior to her stroke, uh, and, and I noticed it at first for first when she was still in the hospital. Okay, so my dad is a pastor, my mother, obviously, a pastor's wife her whole life. Mm-hmm. And both my parents were uh, the children of missionaries, right? My mother oh. in the hospital was telling dirty jokes to the doctors. And oh, I was boy. like, where did she even hear them that she could repeat them? Yeah. But, you know, all this, like, opposite of what she she was. Like, I remember her whole life, she would torture a Kleenex, right? She could blow her nose a hundred times on a single Kleenex. And after <laughs> she had her stroke, she would barely rub her nose and, and throw the Kleenex away. Consequently, my dad was having to buy Kleenex, like, by the truck, and and so, so many things that were predictable before all of a sudden weren't. And right. and so you had to adjust the expectations of what you were going to encounter. And I mean, fortunately, she wasn't mean, but she wasn't capable of the same kind of um, interaction at all. I mean, I, I one of my great disappointments out of this, and again, I know you, you talk about these kinds of things in the book, is... Uh, I had my daughter after she had her stroke and, you know, my, my mom was, you know, just kind of disinterested in her, the, you know, the one or two times that we came to visit mm-hmm. when she was a baby. And, you know, I had always imagined her, you know, holding and loving on her and, and, you know, she just, her attention span was really short. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all those changes and I do have a lot of stories about the the changes that, come about from physical deterioration or a stroke and and I have heard what you just spoke about so many times that often if you are this kindly person before you have a stroke often you're opposite and then if you are rather tough and unkind you turn into the sweetest person ever so it must be something (laughs) in the brain that totally twists because um, a good friend of mine her mother-in-law was always unkind to her, always unkind to her. And would, my friend was one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet. Well, this older woman had a stroke, and she totally changed. And now she's like sweet as pie to everybody, but especially to her daughter-in-law. And uh, my friend says, you know, I think God gave me 10 hard years, and now I've had 
25 great years with this woman, and she said, I'm not happy that she had a stroke, but it made her a better woman. And it was just interesting. I always think about that, like, wow, you never know from day to day what you're going to encounter in a relationship with somebody. Ever. Right, right. Um, you know, I there's a, a chapter where you talk about um, meeting the needs that your parents never met. I'd love to hear about that one. Well, we did allude to this a little bit earlier, but it's the situation where you might have had parents who, who didn't do their job. Perhaps they provided for you materially, but they were absent emotionally. Maybe mm-hmm. they didn't provide for you. Maybe they were addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever and were totally absent. So so then you, you go through life knowing that you didn't have a good home life as a kid. You grow up, maybe you marry and have kids of your own, determined to do it better, and you do do it better. And then you have these older parents who have never changed, and they're still dysfunctional, they're still angry, they're still addicted, and mm-hmm. then they need you. How do you react to that? I mean, you've got wounds. If you've been a person who's walked through it and determined I'm going to forgive them no matter what, I'm not going to let their failings ruin my life through bitterness. I'm not going to carry that. You're okay. But how many people find it easy to, to really love someone who's hurt them? Or who is, like you said, is disinterested, but as soon as they have a need, they come in. That's tough stuff. And I think, you know, I would say you need good friends around you to speak truth into your life, to help you have proper boundaries. I know a woman right now who's caring for an elderly parent who abused her for 20 years sexually. And I don't even know if that's healthy, but she's trying to do the right thing by this parent. And I thought, that's a tricky one. You know, I mean, because people who are predators, unless they change, really change, they could be predatory in a different way, but still preying on their adult child and yeah. trying to control them in unhealthy ways. So that is a very difficult, but again, there can be forgiveness, there can be restoration, and it's never too late if someone is still drawing breath. But the stories in the book talk a lot about different men and women who decided to do the honorable thing even if their parents were really dishonorable people. And, you know, they learned a lot, and they set a good example for their their spouse, their friends, their community, and their own children. So all in all, you know, you overcome evil with good as best you can, but sometimes there is no peaceable option, and sometimes you have to walk away from a person who's destructive. Right, right. Um, You also talk about, and, you know, I know there are lots of circumstances where this can occur, you know, recognizing that your parents' personalities may completely disappear. And, I mean, we talked about the the flip-flop, but I'm thinking now about um, friends that I know who who are dealing with Alzheimer's and -hmm. and where, you know, you've got that complete disconnect of, of memory and personality in many cases that they're they're not just not remembering but they're just different Mm -hmm. um and and so you know i know you have some stories from that front um you know but alzheimer's clearly presents its own challenges when somebody's trying to care for for them at home and then get to the place where they realize they they simply can't they can't keep them safe you're right, and you just said it. There, get, there becomes a point where it's no longer safe. No matter if you have the most lovely home in the world and you have time to care, if you have a parent 
who is gone mentally, and they could be a danger to you and your family. They could wander right. off and never come back. So there's a point where people need to be in a facility where they are kept inside or watched all the time. And I think that is a heartbreaking situation, especially if you have a parent who's sweet and you just think, why am I doing this? But on the flip side, I have a story in the book about a woman who was really suffering herself because her and her mother had been very close and that her mom's memory was just going and she had full-blown Alzheimer's, could not remember anything that happened, you know, in the last hour, half hour, whatever. But she remembered her childhood. And my friend decided, you know what, I have never been one to sit down and reflect upon my the way my mom and dad grew up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start writing a history. And so instead of being frustrated and disappointed and just emotionally undone every time she talked to her mom or tried to, she would say, okay, mom, tell me about, and she would name something when her mom was five years old and her mom could remember that. So then she would fill in all these blank spaces of their family's history. And she's not writing a book, but she's writing kind of a family memoir that she will print for her family. And I thought, what a beautiful way of taking something inherently painful and turning it around and making it a blessing for you. And it blessed her mom to have somebody to listen to her. And it didn't matter if she repeated herself. Her mom would laugh. Her mom became animated and just would smile at the memories that she had from being a young girl. And my friend has just learned so much about life way back when, too, that they were always too busy to do. And I thought, that is such a beautiful story. And I thought, you know, that's what we have to look for. Why we got to find the blessing in the burden instead of just internalizing all the pain and that, you know, even anger that we can't have what we once had with someone. Right, right. And, you know, I think there are a couple of practical things. And, you know, they occurred to me as as my parents were deteriorating. And then as my mother-in-law, you know, start well, when we knew she only had a short period of time to to go. Um, And and, uh, with my parents, I actually interviewed my dad on tape. Um, and I used a book called Grandfather Remembers, and there's a, a Grandmother Remembers too, or Mother, you know, Mother and Father, and you can order them on Amazon, and they're fill-in-the-blank books that actually take you through all of that. And and if they're at a state where they can remember, you have to do it in small chunks. You can't, you know, can't say, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to do this today, right? You know, it, it it's yes. exhausting uh, sometimes. And and you know, and I got some un intended consequences when I was asking my father because I got more um, anger and, and bitterness about things that had happened than I ever expected. Um, mm. You know, I thought it was all going to be wonderful memories, right? And, and sometimes, you know, they haven't talked about it because they haven't talked about it and they haven't wanted to. Um, and then the thing that occurred with my mother-in-law, uh, I didn't really do some of those things that I wish I would have, such as getting her you know, to write her family history, at least verbally. But after she died, I, you know, I, of course, was the one, because I was home a lot and my husband was traveling, and, that I had to clean out her house, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. came across all these pictures that I had no idea who these people were. And I should have spent those last few weeks when she was still lucid, you know, before, you know, she had to have the morphine and such in the last few days, um, you know, going through boxes of pictures with her and at least writing mm-hmm. on the back of them who they were, or if she couldn't remember, throwing them away then, you know, because right. there's so much work that has to be done to clean things up 
after they're gone that, you know, that one little thing, again, can spark great memories, can, you know, spark conversation and, you know, really learning more about them than you ever had. And so you have a, a, another chapter a little bit earlier in the book talking about how, how do you learn to listen well, right? Listen, really listen to what they're saying, especially if you know you're going to lose them because, you know, obviously earlier in life we have to listen to our parents, but, you know, sometimes you, you may not want to be sitting there listening. So let, let's talk a little bit about listening. Well, you know, listening, they say we only listen at, there's like five levels and rarely do we get past the second level. But really listening well is, you know, getting in there with empathy, putting yourself in the speaker's shoes and looking at them, you know, really saying to yourself, why are they saying this? What is their history? How are they feeling? You know, and really, really trying to put yourself right in their place from head to heart. And I think when we listen well, you know, we we can do that with peers a lot easier because most of our friends don't repeat themselves. But we tend to get lazy when we have a parent who might try to tell you the same story 50 times. Right. So that whole, I think your expectations have to be different with an older person. And you have to go into it with, I'm going to be with this person for the next two hours. And you know what? The next two hours are theirs. And if they want to talk to me about way back in the day when they walked a mile in the snow every day to, you know, to school, I'm going to hear that story. I'm going to respond appropriately and with grace. And I might try to guide the conversation somewhere else. But if they keep coming back, I need to ask myself why. Because is that a a memory that scarred them? Or is it a memory they're proud of? Is it a memory that they haven't resolved? And just like you said, you go through people's things when they're older or after they've passed away, when you've had that responsibility, that can spark so much emotion in us as adult children because it can be happy memories or sad memories or we realize we've missed the chance to talk to our parents about something that maybe never was resolved. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing. It just might be something that you go, well, I never got to talk to them about such and such and I really wanted to know how that ended. And as you also said, some of the conversation that we may hear may make us upset because life isn't rosy for everybody and there are reasons why our parents' generation tend to be quiet about certain areas as more our generation talks about things and gets it out and tries to work through it. You know, I've seen a lot of older women um, in the small group that I'm in tend to look kind of surprised when people ask them how they feel about things, almost as if they just matter-of-factly accept it and don't really contemplate, well, why do I feel this way? I think that's more of our generation and below that are into our feelings. So you have to listen with compassion, and I guess that's the bottom line. Listen with compassion as if, you know, how you might be 30 years from now. You want somebody to understand you, and uh, I think that's the best rule of thumb right there. Right, right. Um, one of my favorite uh, chapters is actually the one where you talk about them using their gifts. And and my mother had been a music teacher uh, her whole life, and so when she had her stroke, it was it was really devastating because um, you know she could no longer uh, play the piano with both hands. Right, she lost complete mm-hmm. use of her her right hand side, but also. Uh, and, you know, of course, you learn so much when your parent goes through this. Um, you know, she lost the right side of her vocal cords, right? Oh, you, you lose, right. you know, parts of things like 
um, the right hand side of each eyeball, right, goes. Mm-hmm. It's not your right eye or your left eye. It's it's you know your your vision isn't the same. And um, but but she still. Uh, I remember uh, visiting once, and she was at elder care, and I went over with my dad. And um, she had an electronic keyboard and she was playing with one hand and singing mm. her gravelly, you know, she had had a gorgeous voice and, you know, singing her gravelly voice, but everybody loved it. Right. And so she mm-hmm. did use those gifts and talents and really just weeks before her stroke, she had been in uh, the church's production of Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat. Right. And she oh. had been dancing around on the stage. So, um, you know, really helping her stay uh, involved in that. And of course, over time, she wasn't able to do that uh, again. But, you know, even when they moved into a facility, um, you know, I do remember times when she was able to play. So, um, you know, and you, you talk about it as gently challenging them to keep using their gifts and talents. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I, and I think the, the word, the key word here is gently, only because if I lose an ability to do something, a skill, a talent, a gift that I've really treasured my entire life because I get sick or because whatever the reason is, I'm no longer able to do it. It's a loss to me. It is a loss to me. And I have to grieve the lack of that gift or ability. I have to grieve it like I grieve a death because my life isn't the same anymore. And I think we forget that older people feel the same way. You know, I mean, if you have a parent who loves to work out in the garden and can't even bend down anymore and they have to, you know, point to what they want someone else to do, how frustrating is that? So, you know, you have older people who have the heart and even maybe the mind, but the body's not cooperating anymore, and they are well aware of it, that they are limited. That's not easy. Aging isn't easy for anyone. So I think there's a grief process there, and people around them, their family members and trusted friends need to find maybe similar ways they can use a gift, um, and maybe just easier, cut some corners, or try right. to keep them involved in that. But, you know, have conversations with them. Let them talk about it. Because sometimes we think, well, they're not busy enough. My parents aren't busy enough. What are they doing? Well, you know, maybe when I'm 80, I won't want to be as busy as I am right now either. Give <laughs> them, you know, the room to, to age in the way that they see fit. But, yes, try to get them using the gifts and talents they still have in an age-appropriate way. And just like your mom, she may not be able to sing like she used to, but she did the keyboard, and how great is that? So we need right. to get creative trying to ease the pain of their loss by finding smaller ways, maybe more less significant ways, maybe less um, public ways that they will feel comfortable still enjoying what they've always treasured. You know, I think when we use a little creativity, we can find things that will help our parents age with less pain. And, I, you know, I know as I age, and I'm 56, there's things now that I say, wow, I don't think I can do that anymore, you know, physical <laughs> challenges. And I people think oh, I'm yeah. young. So, you know, you just, you got to, you know, really be uh, tender towards someone who's older and really ask yourself, boy, if I suffered that loss, how would I feel? I'd be sad. Right. right. Know, and try to, try to ease it for them. Right. And, and you do address helping them through and guiding them through the physical limitations that they face, because I think that's sometimes the hardest thing. And I, I remember when we had to take my mother-in-law's uh, car keys away from her and we sold her car. And, um, you know, this kind of ties into one of the other chapters, which is 
you know, communicating difficult news in a kind manner. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that was a very, very hard thing, you know, giving up that independence. But we, you know, we said, hey, we're right across the street. We can take you to church. We can take mm-hmm. you to the grocery store, you know, whatever you need to do. And again, mm-hmm. Patty, who is my producer, lived with her and, and was just enormously helpful, uh, you know, in helping her through those things. But I will tell you that we never, ever, no, the doctors didn't, and we never, ever told her she had pancreatic cancer Um, Mm. because she was not, um, I don't know how to say it kindly, but she, she wasn't someone who ever dealt well, um, you know, with, with difficult situations. Um, Mm -hmm. She was, she wasn't a a brave, tough woman. My mother was, you know, my mother was just amazing in that regard. Um, but it wouldn't, I don't think it would have accomplished anything because she had such a short period of time left and mm-hmm. we just did everything we could to make that time the best. And we were able to bring her home and we had, uh, we thankfully, uh, and I, I don't see this specifically addressed, but I want to turn our attention the, the last few minutes that we have here to talk about some of the, the financial things, right? Because we had had the foresight and and even thinking she would live a very long time to get long-term care insurance for her. But mm-hmm. knowing that we didn't want to put her in a nursing home if we could at all avoid it because we hated visiting my my husband's father. We absolutely mm-hmm. hated it. The smell, the, you know, just everything about it. We didn't like it. And I couldn't imagine being the one who was going to be you know, left with the responsibility of, of going to see her all the time. Um, right. You know, cause again, my husband travels and uh, you know, my kids were, you know, getting to be young teenagers. Um, so uh, anyway, I'll, I'll be quiet now and let, let you talk about it. But you know, that, that was uh, such a hard decision for us to make of, of not talking about that particular news because I, I, I really don't think it would have accomplished anything. Well, and I think you were wise and kind because she didn't need to know she was going to die very soon. And if she wasn't the kind of person who had the strength to handle it, well, you really were merciful. And I think that's wonderful. And I, I, she was ready to go by the way. And then let me just interject Mm -hmm. this because you have another chapter on sharing your faith with unbelieving parents. I mean, she was a very strong believer. She knew, you know, that, that she would be going, you know, to be with her Lord and, and, and that was comforting to her. So, um, you know, we, we would just kind of softly talk about, you know, going home, right? Not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being at home so that you can go home, <laughs> right? Right. Well, that's a blessing. And I think that's one aspect of that can bring so much joy and so much comfort and so much peace to adult children in our age group as well as our older parents. You know, I know when my father-in-law was dying of esophageal cancer, we found out that he had esophageal cancer on, at a funeral for the grandfather. So here we're sitting at the post-funeral you know, funeral meal, and he looks at us and says, I have esophageal cancer. Well, he died five months later. But I will tell you, in that five-month period, he was a transformed man, and he had been a man who struggled with depression his entire life and just a sad, sad, um, kind of a broken emotional man. And But yet... He had a great faith in God. He knew where he was going, and I just saw a change in him, and it made me think, wow, this is what I would call a good death because he was transformed. He never complained. 
and he had a lot to complain about because esophageal cancer is very painful. And I would take him to radiation treatment day after day after day. And I remember sitting there, and we would talk and talk and talk, and I thought, I wouldn't trade this for anything. Because even though I'd known him for 30-some years, we were really, we got really close in those last five months. And I think God was showing me, I can do all things well, and even dying can be done well when I'm in it. And, you know, he was right in the center of my my um, father-in-law's life, and it was just grace upon grace upon grace, as opposed to our elderly neighbor five years before who it was not like that. It was such a contrast. And I think, you know, like you said, you have to be prepared for caregiving to go from to zero to 100 in 24 hours. And I had a doctor once tell me too many people you know, take in an elderly relative and they think, well, I can handle it. And he says, yeah, but next week they could be needing 24-7 care and you're not equipped for that. So you need to look, you know, long-term, you know, you know, get the right kind of insurance, get the right kind of health care, get the right kind of whatever you need and set up a team of people to help if you can because, you know, you don't realize you can't do everything. We are limited in our strength and energy. Right, right. Well, um, I want to talk just a little bit more about finances because, um, you know, as I said, we we had the foresight to buy this long-term care insurance. And what that allowed us to do uh, from a practical perspective, and again, uh, we probably couldn't have kept her at home if if my friend Patty um, didn't, didn't live with her. Um, mm-hmm. But we had caregivers that we were able to find through care.com. Um, and they didn't have to be nurses or even CNAs. Uh, they could just be, you know, home health uh, workers. But they came every day and, and sat with her and gave her her meals and, you know, bathed her and all of those things. But, the, you know, and that you would expect, right? And we were able to have, you know, mm-hmm. one during the week and another one that came on weekends. But when she bounced back and forth to the hospital and to the, um, the rehab place, they would go and sit with her at the hospital and they would go sit with her at the, the rehab place. And that mm. caused the, the nurses to be more on their toes, right? Because she right. did have somebody sitting there. And it also gave her the continuity and comfort of having that face there. And, the, and then it didn't seem so stark when I would only come for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. on my way in between dropping kids off and, and all of the things that I had to do. Now, it's important for those who do invest in in something like that to understand what it will actually pay for. And, and it would only pay $100 a day, right? And mm-hmm. that doesn't buy you much home health care if, if right. that's your goal. So um, what other things about the financial aspect of, of aging parents would you – um, you know, kind of alert or caution people about? Well, there's so many agencies available now in most cities that are, because our society is aging in such great numbers, that are available. And you can find them. And you can, if you don't know of the agencies or if you need some help, you can call your local hospital, you know, you, and they will direct you to the right people. But I think what's often overlooked is the personal finances that the caregivers put out that really can stress their budget. And let's say you have to go see your elderly mom and dad, and they live 50 miles away, and you're making that trip three or four times a week. Well, gas is not cheap. 
well, cheaper now than right. it was, but it's still not cheap, and you have wear and tear in your car, plus the time. And if, let's say, you have to take off work to take them to the, the doctor's office because there is no one else, or you haven't thought about it ahead of time to set that up, and they need to go, well, you lose work, and some people lose money when they're not at work. And then you right. think you're bringing meals to them. Well, your grocery budget goes up, or you're going to spend so much time with your elderly parents that you stop and get takeout every night for your own family while you're doing laundry. I mean, it's like you're taking on the responsibility of another person's life. And you know what? It's not just visiting them. It's not just the emotional and the mental strain or the physical strain. It's every little thing that goes on in your life. They're still living. They still need clean clothes. You know, clean laundry, they need their house cleaned, their their yard taken care of, that they live in a home, their pets cared for, which is a whole other, you know, dimension of who's going to take care of the dog when the mom is in the hospital kind of thing. So you have to really look at it and say, well, how will we handle this um, when mom and dad get older? And who's going to pay for it? Because oftentimes money is a very ticklish subject that adult children do not like to talk about with their elderly parents. You know, right. but I think the people who do it, right up front and say, you know, Mom, I can help you, but I'm going to need some money for gas, the elderly parents generally are more than happy to pay that bill because they would rather have their loved ones caring for them than a stranger. But often, and I even have a story in the book about a woman who was a single mom with kids and she did not have the gas money to keep making these long trips. And her friend said to her, you either have to ask your parents for money now or your budget is going to ask you to ask them two months from now when you're charging everything and you can't pay for it. And the right. way her friend said it, it really hit her. And she thought, yeah, as hard as this is, I'm going to have to learn to say it the right way, but I need some help. And, of course, Americans never want to ask for help, which is, right. I think, a failing. But we're a community, and we should be willing and able to, you know, say, I can do this, but I need some help too. Right. But the other thing that that um, sparks in me is remembering, uh, and I don't even remember precisely when it occurred, but there was a time when my husband actually took over paying his mother's bills, right, Mm -hmm. where she really couldn't keep things straight. and, uh, And she was giving away so much money to charity, which, you know, again, you can't fault her for that, but she then like wouldn't be able to pay you know, regular bills. And, and right. so at that time, uh, he stepped in and had her sign financial power of attorney. And, you know, we put his name on the bank account. And had we not done that before she died, then everything would have had to go, uh, you know, to probate. And But mm-hmm. because we had also taken the step to have her house put in our name as well, you know, both mm-hmm. of us. Um, right. And so that that if she passed away, it just automatically passed to us without having to be dealt with in her will. Um, that made it so much easier when she was gone. Um, and, you know, uh, she had made sure that she did redo her will um, so that, um, you know, her other son who, um, you know, didn't come to visit and didn't contribute. In fact, she was sending them money and he was in his fifties. Right? Oh, okay. um, so, you know, and, and we had to deliver the hard news to him of, listen, you know, even when we sell the house, you know, we've been caring for her now for 
over 10 years. And, you know, this has not been without cost to us. So that's kind of the other hard conversation that has to happen is, is with the other siblings. Yeah, and I, you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, how many times <laughs> your, your siblings do not step up in the way that you would expect them to. I mean, right. there's always a, a couple in the family who who are responsible people and do the right thing no matter what, and then you have the other people. And it's a very, uh, very difficult territory to get through with siblings because often, and I do, and I cite this in the book too, there's so many stories of women and men who've done the right thing by their parents and then once the parents pass away, the siblings step in for all, you know, the material goods, the money, whatever. And oh, there's yeah. some really, really hard conversations. Like, like you just said, you know, we've been caring for her for 10 years. This has been with expense right. and time and, and really, really? So I think you're wise to get everything uh, properly handled with a lawyer right up front as soon as possible and, you know, let your expectations fall where they may, but be realistic that not everyone is going to feel that they need to care for their parents in the same way you will. And right, you have right. to decide what you can do, what you can't do. But again, there's tough love involved there as well. And I think people just have to be financially savvy. And, and don't don't mess around with that. Get it done before you need to do it. Exactly, exactly. Well, Michelle, this has been really amazing. And again, I, I just want to reiterate to our regular listeners who are listening today uh, that if you are facing this or you think sometime soon you may be uh, facing this, first of all, go out and get this book because it's been incredibly thorough of of you know touching on each of these topics. Uh, in a really meaningful way. The other is make sure that the people uh, that you work with understand that this is going on in your life. And, and even if you tend to be a very private person, because it does intrude at times that are not convenient and, and uh, you know, in, into the course of your life, whether it be, you know, with your kids and as Michelle said, not being able to make dinner and all of a sudden you got fast food for uh, a month or two. <laughs> Right. Um, so, Michelle, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you or to follow you uh, on social media, what is the best way for them to reach you? Well, uh, I'm on Facebook every day, and I always respond to listeners, readers, whatever. So they can reach me at Facebook. I have a blog as well. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Pinterest. I'm on it all. So if you just type in Michelle Howe with one L, you will find me. So I'm there, and I really do like to interact with people. And sometimes when they interact, uh, they become part of the next book I'm writing, too. Oh, great, great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. And I just wish you a wonderful weekend. And, you know, keep me posted as to to what the next book is going to be. And uh, we'll make sure to have you back on. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend as well. I appreciate it. Okay, terrific. And uh, for our listeners, if you want to know more about the Game Changer Network, go to thegamechanger.network. And uh, you can subscribe to all of our broadcasts without commercials, which is really, really nice. And uh, we also have a new network that we are starting uh, to allow uh, both entrepreneurs and business uh, owners to uh, work together in, in teams that we are, are calling our executive villages. So uh, keep 
uh, your ears perked up for that. That's likely going to happen uh, after the first of the year. And uh, we are so grateful uh, to you for listening to the show. Thanks so much and have a great weekend. Go out and change your game today. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.